Hello and welcome to the Fully Delighted Podcast, a podcast from South Mountain Community Church, a multi-site church with five locations in Utah. Each week we'll be hearing from our lead pastor, Paul Roby, and others as we explore what it means to be fully delighted in God and how we help as many people as possible experience this at SMCC. This is the Fully Delighted Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Fully Delighted Podcast. This is a conversation that we hope will spur on more delight and less despair. My name is Adam, and I'm the Campus Support Team Director here at South Mountain Community Church. And with me today, I've got Paul Roby, our lead pastor, and Eric Nelson, our teaching pastor. Guys, how are you doing today? Doing good. Thank you. Hey, Adam. Excited to be here for another episode. Excellent. Glad to have you guys here and uh, kind of a little something different today because what we're doing is we're, we're kind of figuring out our schedules, figuring out a rhythm for this. And uh, today will be the last episode of season one of this podcast. And we'll take a little break over July just because there's um, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of scheduling things that we got to figure out. Um, and then in August, we'll come back with season two. And uh, we already have, I think, some really good conversations planned out for season two. And so we hope that you guys will, you know, stay subscribed and uh, be here for that. Um, But before we get into our conversation today, I do want to remind you guys of a few things. Uh, We do ask, uh, this is a great way to help us out if you can do that and give us, you know, 60 seconds of your time. Please leave a review. I did see some new ones coming in. Somebody just commented that they love the discussion, gave us five stars, think it's it's really helpful. And so I, I love getting those in. Um, share with a friend if you think it'd be helpful with somebody as well, and uh, just kind of get the word out there. Um, and we just have lots and lots of downloads coming in, and so I know that you guys are already doing that, and so I want to thank you for that. And uh, as well, we don't have a voicemail for today's episode, but would love more questions. Maybe even today, we'll spur on some questions, and we'll get to those when uh, when we come back with season two. But the number uh, to call in and ask a question is 801 382 eight one five one again that number will be in the description below so that you can call and ask us a question and uh, today what we're going to do is we're kind of going to shift gears we we have planned out what we want to do for season two but we don't want to jump the gun on that yet but give you guys something that uh, is helpful today and so what we've been doing is loosely kind of going off of the smcc way this document that guides our church and um, so what we have today is basically going through this might sound boring, but bear with me if you're listening, the appendix of our SMCC way. And what this is, is our beliefs. And so maybe you've heard of SMCC before, and you'd be curious what our beliefs are. Maybe you attend SMCC, and maybe you just don't know exactly all of our beliefs. We'll help you out with that. Um, but we want to walk through those and, and just kind of give some some conversation on those. So Eric, where should we start for today? Well, yeah, I want to frame up why this is not boring at all. Uh, say you move to a new town and you want to investigate churches in the area or you go through some type of monumental moment in life. In fact, we have a, se- a series coming up called Monumental about these big changes. You know, maybe there's a, a birth in the family. It causes you to reevaluate, puts things into perspective. Maybe you go through something tragic um, and, you, and you begin to think, man, I, I wonder if I need God in my life or I'm new here and I wonder what local church in my community will be my church. In fact, Adam, you're doing a message coming up called, uh, and really the question of the message is, how do I know a church is worth attending? And so when you go to a website on a church, you will always see, I'm thinking most websites, the section that says doctrinal statement. Doctrinal statement. What does a church, what does this church believe? In fact, we have that up on our website. And so what we're gonna talk about today is what, we mean in our doctrinal statement with the eight things that are in our doctrinal statement. We're going to go through those. And um, I think every church probably has their doctrinal statement. And we want to just take some time to walk through ours. Yeah, it's in the appendix of the SMCC way, but uh, but this is very important to, to who we are. Yeah, a lot of times we talk about a theological vision. And we've kind of spelled that out in the, in the first several uh, episodes of this podcast. But it's rooted in a theological statement and what we believe about the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And so I, I'm excited about doing this. Excellent. So we've got, I think we figured out about eight you know, things in here. And um, so let's just start going through them and, and helping out uh, people who may not be looking at this document to, to just see what we've got here. We've got this first one here. Uh, we believe the Bible to be inspired and infallible, and as such, the supreme authority in faith and life. So I'm just the host here. I've got the two pastors here. Let's let's let them talk on this. All right. Well, the first word there that needs definition is inspired, and that word means God breathed. 
And so what we believe is that the writers of Scripture were uh, influenced by God, and we oftentimes talk about the Holy Spirit inspiring or, or breathing God's Word into people. And so the unique thing about that is it wasn't dictation. I mean, these writers used their own personality, their own word choice, whatever, but they communicated the Word of God. And this is certainly true about the first five books of the Bible with Moses. He didn't actually pen these words, but he had a secretary or, or somebody who, who did that. We know that because some of the first five books of the Bible were written after he died. I mean, so he, you know, they told the rest of that story. Now, obviously, there's different types of literature that we're talking about in the Bible. And there's, you know, history, there's poetry, there's wisdom literature, there's um, straightforward doctrinal teaching, uh, biography, what, what have you. And so when we're talking about inspiration, each writer was inspired to write that type of literature, and especially in terms of the book of Revelation, apocalyptic literature is super rare. And so it's very difficult to understand. We're not going to, you know, probably die on any interpretation of what John wrote there in Revelation. And and yet we know that he was inspired by God to say those things. Um I think that so many people this this is why we actually insist on not using the phraseology God spoke to me the other day because that hints at inspiration and if you've been inspired by God he's spoken to you and now you say and therefore I'm telling you this message that better be accurate in fact, in, in Jeremiah, there's several passages where that particular prophet, there's other prophets, Isaiah and, uh, as one, but specifically Jeremiah is talking about how different prophets are claiming to speak for God and they don't speak for God. And he clearly says that. They say, thus saith the Lord, but they are not being inspired by God to say the things that they are saying. And so uh, it's a very serious thing to say that God spoke to you, inspired you now to say something. We don't want to do it. Now, we use the word inspired in a different way. Like, I was really inspired by what I read today. Well, that's okay. We get that. But when you say God spoke to me, that has reached a new level of revelation, and so when we're talking about inspiration, we're talking about revelation. And that is very rare and very remarkable. And uh, in terms of Scripture, I think we're done with that. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 that God spoke uh, in, in various ways through different people. And then he says, but in these last days, he has spoken through his Son. And so Jesus he claimed to speak the word of God. The, I only, he says, uh, I only say the words that the Father has given me. He says, it is my food to do the will of my Father. And so he took on a servant type of role and now a spokesman type of role. And in fact, he's just uh, so submissive and, and, and um uh, what's the other word? But he's serving the Father's purposes in such a way that he is only speaking those words. He's inspired by the Father to say these kind of these these words. It's the word of God. Jesus Christ came for the purpose of dying for man's sin. He's also he also came to the uh, earth in order to demonstrate what God is like. But very importantly, is he came to speak the word of God, and now the Holy Spirit comes to remind the apostles of the word of God, and it's the Holy Spirit that inspires them to speak the word of God. And so, it very clearly, Hebrews 1, he has spoken through the Son. That means he's done speaking revelation. And so, we don't believe that the, the, the lid is open on Revelation. We believe the lid is closed on Revelation. And so um, because of that, 
we really want to be careful when we say God spoke to me. Man, that's really good. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> of course, we don't have time to, you know, defend all of these conclusions fully. But to put it very simply, um, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. What the Bible says, God God says. That's what that's what we're saying here. And and of course, a listener might be thinking, um, well, well, wasn't the Bible canonized in like 325 AD? I mean, then then it became scripture. No, it was taken as the word of God. Instantly, we can point to New Testament passages where the Apostle Paul's words were understood as authoritative the moment they they were written. And then, of course, the thing that really sets the Bible apart, uh, both as literature and as revelation, is the manuscript evidence. I mean, the the number of of copies of the New Testament that that we have it's just incredible. It's the it's the most validated and supported text ever. Um, it really is. And so, uh, that's that's very, very helpful in understanding um, why the Bible can be an authority, why it should be an authority, um, and why it is infallible. I mean, if we were to investigate that, and we do a course, What is Christianity?, where we talk about uh, these textual criticism issues. Textual criticism is an area of study that looks to sort of evaluate, unpack, and maybe pick apart the Bible. But, but as we look at those textual variances, like are we, you know, is there differences in these manuscripts? I mean, it is so minute that this is a this is a sound document and really it's you know 66 different documents but but this uh there's so much weight to this there's so much support to this that um that the bible really is then our authority for faith meaning uh what do we know is true about god and life which is how do we live out that truth every day and so that's where the that's why every sermon comes from the bible that's why um we evaluate our thoughts and feelings by the bible it all runs through that grid and i like to say this uh Yet we do not worship the Bible. We go through the Bible to worship the Lord. So that's that's really important to say as well. Yeah, I, I think sometimes, you know, we could be accused of worshiping the Bible Bible because we believe it's so true. And it it, it supports everything we want to say because we believe that God's word is helpful and hopeful to people. Uh, it it is used by the Holy Spirit to change lives. The Bible is a document that reports on the most important event in human history, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the ground, uh, ground well, the uh, foundation of, of, of Christianity, and the Bible is the record of that uh, yeah. event and all the other events that point to God. Yeah, Andy Stanley has helped me see it this way, that the, the Bible didn't give us Christianity, the resurrection is what launched Christianity. And so I think that's an important thing to consider. And yet we only know about the resurrection, uh, not only, but the primary way that we know about the resurrection is through the eyewitnesses and what they recorded in the Bible. Because of the resurrection, all the rest of what's in the Bible is really important. Mm-hmm. There you go. If Love the that. resurrection didn't happen, it wouldn't, it, that, that would just be another book. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. Uh, the next one, and, and I can tell. Is that already, five minutes long? <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's close enough. I'm sure we are, I would sure hope we have some voicemail questions after this week because we're going to, we obviously cannot do a ton into each of these, but yeah. um, let's go to the second one. We believe that there is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, it says Jesus Christ in parentheses there, and Holy Spirit. So here's, this is a, this is a big one. Yeah, let me take this on in just a, just a few minutes here. Um, so most people hear the word Trinity and they think that is illogical or it's bad math. Uh, one plus one plus one equals one. Okay, that's what a lot of people, that's what a lot of people think. Um, the most helpful way that I've been explaining this lately, and people have told me, man, this makes a lot of sense, um, is being is what you are. Person is who you are. So God is one being. There is one God that we worship. We know this from Deuteronomy. We know this all throughout the Bible that Christianity is monotheistic. There is one God. And of course, I think logically and philosophically, this makes sense. If there are multiple gods out there, then of course, there isn't one that is all powerful or all knowing if there's multiple. So there's got to be an unmoved mover uh, or one source of all things, one first cause, okay? So Christianity is has one what, okay? One being, one God, who has always existed in three persons. Person is who you are. So the Trinity is one what, three who's, three 
persons. Now, uh, being and personhood are not always the same thing, okay? It's not always a one-for-one. With humans, I'm a human being, I'm one what, and I'm Eric, I'm one who. Um, But take something like a tree, for example, all right? The tree huggers out there might disagree with me on this, but a tree uh, is alive, it has has being, but it is not a person, all right? So it's not always a one-for-one being and personhood, what and who. And so we see this with the God of the Bible. One what, three who's always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, three in one triunity. Now, of course, throughout the centuries, there's been heresies that have have kind of uh, risen up around this, that there, there was one called modalism, that there's one God who basically put on a new mask when he showed up as Jesus. And then once Jesus left, he put on a new mask and took on a new mode and, and then became the Holy Spirit. And um, and that's not, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, another heresy that each of them is like one third God. That's not it either. I mean, it's fully God. And so this is what the Trinity is. And it's, it is very, very important. If God is God, a God of love and he is not three in one, then the question is, who is God loving before he creates us? And if he is not loving anybody before he creates us, then he is dependent on us to be who he is. And therefore, there's a, a gap in his character. He's dependent on us. And that's that's a different type of, of heresy. That's a problem. And so, God has always existed as one being in three persons. And therefore, there is community among the Trinity. And he created us as an overflow of, of that. And so, I think that is very, very important um, to talk about the implications of believing in a God that is not three in one to give up Trinitarian theology. Actually, Christianity breaks down. It really does. It's really important in, in our context here in Utah to understand that Jesus Christ has always been God. There's never been a time that he wasn't God. He's part of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity. And so that's the God of the Bible. The, tr- Trinity, the Trinity describes the God of the Bible. And one of the reasons why we have a doctrinal statement is to protect us from simply creating a God that we like, that we're comfortable with. And I, I've liked, I've liked uh, as I teach classes on this, uh, I have enjoyed putting this out there that if we're going to create a religion from scratch— do you think that guys would sit around the table and uh, say, I know, let's start with the Trinity? I would not start there, no. <laughs> I would not know how to make that up. It It is something that you wouldn't make up because there is no human analogy for it. You know, there's no, the egg doesn't work, ice, the stool, you know, I steam, mean, you know, none of this, none of it works. All of those, yeah. And, I, so, and so it's not man-made. That's the beauty about the Trinity is there's no way that somebody just came up with this in a smoke-filled, you know, room uh, one day around zero <laughs> and said, I know, let's do Christianity. It will, it will be amazing. <laughs> yeah, if we read through the Bible, we see that. God the Father is God. We see clearly that Jesus is fully God, and we see clearly that the Holy Spirit, he, he uh, talk about the Holy Spirit as a person, is fully God. What's the best explanation of that? Three in one. And and Paul, I like that you talk about the egg or water or the stool. People like to talk about those analogies because they can be helpful for some people to realize, oh, sometimes one thing is three things. But at some point, the analogy breaks down, and maybe the analogy is heresy at some point too, because uh, yeah. if, if each is only a part of the whole, that's the that's a heresy. Wow, yeah, big big stuff to talk through. Uh, let's go on to the next one here. This is part of our beliefs number three. We believe that Jesus Christ, by offering himself on the cross, paid the penalty of man's sin, and all who receive him by faith are born of the Holy Spirit and thereby become children of God. Yeah, I, I think that there's some confusion about the role of the Holy Spirit in conversion. I think one of, some of the things we can say about the role of the Holy Spirit is to uh, exalt Christ. That, that's always been the role of the Holy Spirit, and to draw people to him and, and open people's eyes and convict people's hearts. And the Holy Spirit is so important. Once we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit now places us in or baptizes us into, the word baptized means to dip or to immerse. And so now the, holy, the role of the Holy Spirit is to place us into 
Christ. And so now we're one in Christ. It's really important for the church to understand this, that our first identity is in Christ. All other identities are secondary. And so when we're talking about gender issues, we're talking about race issues, we're talking about all kinds of issues, the church is first and foremost made up of all those that are in Christ and subscribe to that as their primary identity. And I think that's super important these days. That's really good. You know, we've talked a lot, Adam, in this podcast about substitution and what what was imputed to Jesus on the cross and then what is imputed to us when we trust him. So I don't want to spend too much time on that great exchange because we've talked about that in previous podcasts because it's core to the, core to the gospel. But um, Paul, I, I like that you want to spend time on the Holy Spirit here. I think we should because it, it bleeds into the next doctrinal statement. And so Adam, would you read that? And then we'll talk. I want to talk a little bit more about those two kind of together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So number four is we believe in the present ministry of the Holy Spirit by whose indwelling the Christian is enabled to live a godly life. So Paul, let's talk about um, a few things that I think are a hot button issue here. Um, let's talk about the criticism that people leverage against SMCC sometimes in terms of the Holy Spirit. And let's, well, but before we get to that one, let's say, Adam, if I forget, bring that one back up. But first, Paul, there's a whole nother movement that says when the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, uh, it's, it's, you, you know it because it's signified by tongues or these gifts. Uh, maybe there's a second baptism of the Holy Spirit or you get the Holy Spirit when you get baptized, not the moment you trust Christ. Um, Paul, when so let's talk about that. When does a believer receive the Holy Spirit? And then um, what about all the things that people talk about with, here's how you know you have the Holy Spirit, tongues and stuff. Let's clear up some of that. Yeah, this is, a, this is an area I've given a lot of thought to. And I um, uh, talked a little bit about that in my message this last week. And my first uh, foray into church after becoming a Christian was uh, the type of church that emphasized the Holy Spirit above all things, which I think is kind of weird now from my position because uh, Christ is the central figure of Christianity. Uh, We believe that the entire Bible points to him and, of course, his work on the cross. And so the Holy Spirit always plays a supportive role. And And when Jesus Christ promised the Holy Spirit that that Holy Spirit would, he would uh, remind people of what Christ said. I already said that. But uh, all the work of the Holy Spirit in terms of convicting, encouraging, all that is to promote a relationship with Jesus Christ, never to draw attention to himself. And so I think that's important to understand role. Now, the moment we we receive Christ, God indwells us through the presence of his Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, uh, I will be, uh, the Holy Spirit will be with you and in you. And so God's presence is in us and with us. And Jesus Christ, I don't know if you got mixed up because he said, I will be with you also. And so it's the presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit in us. It's the Trinity at work. And and so people get mixed up with that kind of stuff. But evidently, it didn't bother Jesus Christ to kind of mix that up a little bit as far as his presence in our life through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You said that very well. There's a great book. If someone wants to study more on this, J.D. Greer has a book called Jesus Continued. Very, very helpful. Uh, He talks about the Holy Spirit as a floodlight ministry, that the Holy Spirit, I don't know if he said this or or we said this at South Mountain, but the Holy Spirit is comfortable being in the background as long as Jesus is in the foreground. If you're looking at the Washington Monument at night, I've shown this picture before in messages. In fact, we have a series in this next year on the Holy Spirit at SMCC, so stay tuned for that. But uh, I've shown this picture of the Washington Monument at night being lit up, and everybody's drawn to how beautiful the monument is. But really, it's the floodlight uh, that allows you to see that. And so that's a great picture of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is comfortable being in the background as long as Jesus um, is is in the foreground. So at SMCC, we spend a lot of time talking about Jesus, knowing that that pleases the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is 
uh, is his purpose is to glorify Christ. And so we've also said this before, and this is kind of a, a crazy statement, but it, it's very, very true that the Holy Spirit in you is better than Jesus in front of you. He said, it's better that I go in the same moment in the gospel of John, John 15, 16, 17. He's talking to those guys. He's preparing them for this moment when the Holy Spirit will be with them because Jesus won't be in front of them. And, um, and that really frames up for me the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I think the doctrine of, of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit come together in a major um, uh, way right now in evangelical Christianity. Probably the greatest heresy challenging the evangelical church today is the idea that Jesus Christ emptied himself of deity in order to come to earth. And this is has to do with what's called the kenosis theory. And so found in Philippians chapter two. And so what did Christ empty himself of is the question. And it wasn't his deity. He didn't cease to be God. And most of the early heresies uh, around second, third century uh, involved uh, this idea that Jesus Christ, how could he be 100% God and 100% man? That's just weird. I know he became God at his baptism, and then he was stripped of his deity at uh, his death or something like that. That Those were common type of things. But now the heresy is that Jesus Christ emptied himself completely of deity. Uh, he, in a sense, had to be born again. And uh, that means that Everything he did in terms of miracles was done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so now we can do all the same miracles Jesus Christ did when we tap into the power of the Holy Spirit the way he did. That is heresy. Mm -hmm. He did not, what he did is he denied the privilege of deity. Correct. Gave up his rights as God. His rights mm -hmm. as God. He didn't. He did empty himself of deity. And if you read the New Testament, he knows what people are thinking. He does miracles on demand. He for, he forgave sin. I mean, he did all the things that God would do. So um, it has a lot of ramifications because now uh, there are preachers in America that manipulate uh, their people through this idea that we should be able to do all the things that we saw Jesus Christ do. So the Holy Spirit fully indwells a believer the moment they trust Christ. Uh, they don't receive the Holy Spirit when they're baptized. Um, it, it's just pretty clear there's no second baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us to glorify Christ, to follow Christ, convicts us of our sin when we are at a step with a life that honors Christ. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And and we we are continuous continuously being filled with the Holy Spirit. There isn't a filling, and some people are filled with the Holy Spirit. Other people are not filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the, you can't get more of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in us as believers, and yet we can yield more and more of our life to the influence of the Holy Spirit in our life, and that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a believer today is influenced, godly influence, and it results in the fruit mm -hmm. of the Spirit. We cannot get more of the Holy Spirit. I, I love that you said that. Uh, I think, uh, we, we've said it this way before, it's so helpful, um, is that a growing relationship with, with God is not us getting more of Him, it's Him getting more of us. Beautiful. And I just love that. Excellent. Uh, the next one that we have, I think this is a really important one, and I think you guys will have plenty to say about this. It is we believe in the resurrection of both the saved and the lost, those that are saved to the resurrection of eternal life and those that are lost to the resurrection of condemnation and eternal separation from God. So it's a pretty, pretty packed <laughs> statement. Wow. Um, well, let's say this. We, we talk about the reasons for the resurrection uh, all the time at SMCC. We've addressed it in the podcast. You know, it really is history's mystery. What happened to the body of Jesus? Until you have an explanation for what happened to the body of Jesus that's rooted in first century uh, evidence, you don't yet have a reason to reject Christianity. I love to say that. So if you're listening out there and you're saying, I reject Christianity, and I would say, then what happened to Jesus' body? And you say, I don't really know. I would say, you haven't thought about it enough to really know if you want to reject Christianity. So, but we talk about that all the time, the resurrection, but we don't talk about in this doctrinal statement all the time is this idea of eternal separation or bodily resurrection. So, Paul, why don't you get us started? <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, the resurrection of the body um, is, is, I think, kind of confusing to some people because what if somebody's been burned in a fire? And think about all the martyrs that were burned at the stake and this sort of thing. And so... I like to, you know, in in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul talks about, don't worry, you'll never be without a tent. (laughs) For Mm -hmm. some reason, that made sense to Well, he's a tent maker. Yeah, yeah. And so, what he's saying is, you'll always have a body, but the moment we die, we go to paradise as, as a believer. And paradise means that we're simply with Christ. Now, we have a body that's appropriate for that particular situation, paradise. There will be a day when there's a new heaven and a new earth, and then we'll get a resurrected body appropriate for that next uh, aspect of resurrection. You know, it's a resurrected body that uh, will be with us for eternity. And so we're never just in this soul sleep. We're not floating around like a ghost. We're not, you know, we're somewhere and that somewhere the moment we die is with Christ in paradise, and, and that comes from the two thieves on the cross and Jesus' discussion that you will be with me today in paradise. And, and, and then beyond that, um, there is something more to look forward to in terms of an eternal body, a new body, mm-hmm. <laughs> without the aches and pains and problems that we all have. Today. Are you looking forward to that, Paul? Yeah, I kind of am. <laughs> Your golf swing might uh, be a little better. I don't know. Just kidding. You have a good swing. Um, yeah, this is this is important. Of course, Jesus had a resu- resurrected body. Uh, people were able to touch him and mm-hmm. eat with him. And I think that's just, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that dive into this and say, let me tell you exactly what it looks like and exactly when. And uh. I just think that you can read too much into the text. We don't right. want to do that. But I think what you said is very clear from 1 Corinthians 15 and what we know about what Jesus' body looked like is very clear as well. So I think that that guides us in the right direction. So uh, what Jesus did, he is the first fruits. He's gone first, we will follow. That's very New Testament. I think something else from this paragraph, this this doctrine is the idea that there is eternal life with God and there is eternal separation from God. We actually believe in that. We believe in a literal hell. And uh, the Bible teaches that. In fact, if you want to ask the question, where can you read most about the topic of hell? It's in the Gospels, and it's out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. He talked more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. Uh, The Jews had a really kind of vague concept of heaven and hell. Uh, They used terms like Gehenna and Sheol and all all these kind of vague terms like garbage dump. They they looked at it as a a garbage dump for uh, people that uh, didn't relate to Jesus Christ by faith or through to God in, in terms of, of the Jewish person, Old Testament, uh, just a faith in God. And I don't think it was a well-realized doctrinal concept, this idea of heaven and hell. It, it took on real meaning and shape when Jesus Christ came and started to explain things to us. But it's still kind of a mystery. Uh, there's just a lot of gaps in our understanding. And so in in one sense, we like what C.S. Lewis said about nobody goes to hell um, that didn't choose it. It's locked from the inside, it's he locked, says. The doors are locked from the inside. But I think the, the most important thing is to realize is that um, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess ultimately that Jesus Christ is Lord, and some will do that willingly and some will do that unwillingly uh, because it will be undeniable at a certain point in history as we move forward uh, that uh, Jesus Christ is who he said he was. Everybody will see that. Yeah, I don't think that uh, Hollywood and artwork and over the last few hundred years, some of the artwork that's come out and even the cartoons we see, I don't think... Any of that has really helped us in our theology of hell. I think that's created some weird um, misconceptions about hell. I like to talk about it as a quarantine, and we know what that means now uh, more so than ever, but a quarantine for evil that when 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 God calls time on all things, that which uh, is in rebellion to him will, will need to be quarantined forever to protect those who will be with him forever and protect them from evil. And so it just seems like this logical conclusion for where evil goes uh, at the end of 
all time. And so that's, I think that's a, another helpful way to talk about it. Frank Turk says, um, God loves you too much to force you into his presence, right? So like if you don't want to follow Christ now or, or submit the need to him now, people think, well, I surely I'll do it after I die. And it's like, really? I mean, if, is that yeah, going to happen? Yeah, I, I, I've been fascinated a couple places in the, in the New Testament uh, where it says, for those who refused to love God, uh, refuse to acknowledge Christ. And, and so it doesn't seem like people go to hell by accident. Mm-hmm. And I can't really explain all that, but that's something that I'm, I'm kind of thinking about right now is there's no accidental, oh my goodness, I'm in hell. I did, how did I get here? Yeah. I like that you say that. I like the humility that, you know, I've been thinking about this lately. You know, I think, uh, I think our, our doctrinal statement is, is very, very clear. And yet there's, there's room in this to ask questions and continue to right. to take our next steps uh, as we as we think through this. But one of those uh, things is this concept of after I die, will I have a chance then to accept Christ? And um, man, people go back and forth on that. People who love Jesus go back and forth on that. I, you know, I see that it's appointed once for man to die and then face judgment in the New Testament. So I don't see this period where it's like, uh, then I'll have a chance. I think what we decide to do now with Jesus is the decision that we make. So I don't see that, but um, this is all in this area. You know, the only way I would see that is not from Scripture. Mm-hmm. It is certainly not revealed to us in the Bible, but the nature of God is one of justice. And we sometimes just use the word fairness. And he's good. We know that he's loving, he's kind, compassionate, and just. So all those attributes of God will come together at that moment. I don't know what that moment looks like, but certainly God will not violate his His sense of justice at that point. You know, as a pastor, one of the hardest questions that I get asked is, and Paul, you've been asked this many times, I'm sure, Adam, you as well, is someone loses a family member and they come to you and say, is my family member in hell? Is my family member in heaven? Where's my family member? And that is a, that's a, that's a very difficult question because uh, the family knows, hey, this person lived in rebellion to God. So what do you think? And my, here's how I like to sum this up. And I don't mean for this to be a Jesus juke, which is a simple answer that gets me out of the question. But uh, my favorite response, and I, I think actually the first time I heard this, I heard it from my friend Kyle Baker. So Kyle, if you're listening, thanks for this, man. But he said, God always makes the right decision. And I just like that. God will always make the right decision about someone's eternity. And because he's just, like you said, Paul, and because he's good and because he's loving, I'm okay with whatever decision he makes. I ultimately do not know where a person is, but I know that God knows and God always makes the right decision. And that's that phrase, that kind of understanding has brought me a lot of comfort and peace. And clearly, we, we don't believe that God created peop, some people specifically to send them to hell. Mm-hmm. We don't believe that. Yeah. All right, so, Adam, hope that helps. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think this gives people a lot of thought and uh, might want to ask some questions as well. I was thinking about this, you know, one thing that stuck with me, and I hope that uh, listeners can, can, can hear this. I remember uh, being in school and having a, a professor that did a really good job of explaining just the fact, and, and this is in here, so I want to reemphasize this. You know, we as a church don't believe that Jesus just speaks spiritually resurrected like it's just some kind of ghost and then like people saw him as a ghost like it was physical and even at that time there's a lot of philosophy and ideology that was saying the physical is bad if you want to attain what's best in life you have to reject what's physical and aim for what is you know spiritual you know that's where the good stuff is but it's very unique christianity is very unique and say no jesus was physically resurrected as eric said he was a first fruit so mm-hmm. it's saying here's an example of what's going to happen you can look to that example to know what will happen um and there will be a physical resurrection right and i've heard sermons like just like you said paul like what about somebody yeah who got burned or you know whatever listen god created us so if he can create us, he can I put think ashes he can, back I think together. He can puts, yeah, I think he can put things back together. For, I think I heard for, a song about from ashes to something. Maybe that's <laughs> what that's about. No, no, real quick though, what I want to say about this doctrinal point is that we don't believe in universalism. That's really important to say. Universalism is everybody will be saved. Uh, I just don't see that in the New Testament. So this doctrinal statement clearly communicates there's no universalism. Yeah, I, I like Sorry, your Rob point, Bell. Adam, because I don't care who you're talking about, Jews, Greeks, Nobody was thinking resurrection. 
There wasn't a group of people that were thinking, watch this. He'll probably be bodily resurrected, physically resurrected from the dead. And so it was radical. And that's why Jesus even told his disciples they still couldn't wrap their mind around it until they saw him. You know, when people say that the resurrection of Jesus very much models other ancient myths of things dying and rising, no, it doesn't. Okay, no, no, it doesn't. Maybe there was, okay, something ended and then something else came from it, but that is not the same as a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, there's no precedent for that in mythology. Yeah, it's pretty good stuff, and I hope that listeners that have questions about this will <clears throat> continue to ask questions and do research and, and look at things. You know, we're not, uh, we've never been a church that has said, Here, here's our answer, and now don't look any further. <laughs> That is absolutely not who we are. Uh, going on to the next one. We believe in the spiritual unity of all believers in our Lord Jesus Christ as he is understood from the Bible alone, regardless of denomination affiliation. It, this is interesting. Paul, what do you, th- what do you, th- what is, uh, maybe help dissect this a little bit. Yeah, I'm just working on a message on this that uh, we are one in the body of Christ. We're united in him. And of course, there was no denominations or anything like that. When when uh, the Apostle Paul wrote those words in, in Romans chapter 12, and then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so there is the universal body of Christ. Anybody who has genuinely placed their faith in Christ belongs to that body, capital C Christian and church. And, and yet, there's all kinds of local expressions of that, and for some reason, we, we have decided to, as human beings, are characteristically guilty of doing, and that is tried to find our tribe and, and to associate with people that are like-minded, and that's the birth of denominations. And what we're doing right now is a discussion that many people have had, and they come to a different understanding of, just slightly different understanding of some of these doctrines, and then they form a tribe. And and consequently, they because of sin and fear and insecurity is, is, is at the root of all sin, they start to emphasize the differences instead of what unites them. And then, you know, that's where all these battles go on in terms of, well, you're not a real Christian if you don't believe this. And and to some degree, it's good because denominations show that people take doctrine seriously. If they didn't take doctrine seriously, there would be no, de- no denominations or affiliations. There would just simply be Christianity everywhere. But uh, unfortunately... Uh, the Apostle Paul warned us, and Jesus warned us, of many wolves in sheep clothing, sheep's clothing, people that would pervert the Word of God. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy about uh, these kind of people that would come among your people and would try to entice them uh, to believe things that aren't true. And so, in some ways, we form these churches where we have to protect the sheep from false teachers and 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 teach doctrine forcefully and and persuasively so that our people won't be picked off by these wolves and so there is going to be affiliations and denominations but that doesn't keep us from being one and i mean we 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 participate with other christians and all sorts of things yeah, I think uh, in our culture, in here in Utah, we often hear that this said church is one true church. There's only one true church. And I think this this in our doctrinal statement is our way of saying it's not about the door you walk through on Sunday that is your... Um, that's your church that you're, you know, that, that that's who you're united with. I'm united at everybody that goes to SMCC. No, I'm united with every believer who has trusted Christ. And I think uh, what we're saying is uh, you can go to a lot of healthy churches across the globe that uh, are in different languages, that have different color paint on the wall, that sing different songs, that maybe have their, their leadership structures uh, structured differently. And that's, Fine, we can be united with them. So this is our way of saying, look, SMCC is not the one true church. Uh, Capital C Church is people who have trusted Christ as we know him from the Bible alone. And so I think that's why this is an important thing to us at this point in our doctrinal statement. 
Yeah, it's interesting that, uh, you know, we have this in there because I do think it's important. I'll say this um, and I'll give credit to where it was. You know, the church that I used to work at had a really good phrase that I think would would say with us. We talk about this a lot. We're not the only good church like in the Valley, right? Mm -hmm. Like we went to say, hey, if you don't go to SMCC and you're in Utah, you're going to, you know, a bad church, right? You're not a Christian. But there was this idea and I think it's just phrased well. It said rather than... um, we don't want to compete with other churches. We want to complete other churches. That's now, cool. that it can only go so far, um, but we wouldn't say SMCC is the only way to do church, period. Right. And when someone gets baptized at SMCC, it's very important that people know they're not being baptized into South Mountain Community Church. They're being baptized into Christ. They're being baptized into the Capital C Church, which is a group of every believer across the globe. That's what uh, what we're rep- what we're saying when someone is baptized. And we their- accept baptism. People get baptized at a different church. They come to our church. We're like, fantastic. We're happy to hear that you've already been baptized. Exactly. Yeah, as long as they're being baptized into the gospel, then right. then we're, we're good. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's absolutely the fact. Um, we're down to two, two more guys. Well, that's a good segue to the next one. <laughs> we believe that baptism, oh, man, look at that. It's like we planned it. <laughs> we believe that baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality, demonstrating that a person has a new life in Jesus Christ and the recognition of the living presence of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's just an outward demonstration of a inward reality. That's how we like to put it. Uh, the The picture of 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 dying and you know with Christ is the going under the water and being raised to new life in Him uh, is all important. Uh, water is uh, sometimes a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And and so we recognize that it's just the, it's just filled with some symbolism, and I think that's helpful to people. Um, traditions anchor people to a particular family or a particular faith, and so baptism is a tradition that Jesus Christ instituted. Now. We don't get baptized because Jesus got baptized. Jesus didn't need to get baptized. He, he, you know, he already had a relationship with himself, and uh, he didn't have sin. He wasn't being baptized by John for the repentance of sin. He didn't have to prepare his heart for the coming of the Messiah. And so that's a little bit confusing for people. Jesus was baptized to identify with the ministry of John. As John was baptizing people, they were preparing their hearts for the coming Messiah. They were repenting of sin and basically saying, I'm here, I'm, I'm waiting, I'm so ready for the Messiah. That's what they were doing when they were getting baptized. Yeah, I've been baptized twice. Adam, anybody else been baptized twice? Yeah, I was sprinkled as a baby. Yeah, I was I was sprinkled and then baptized later. Yeah. yeah, I was sprinkled in a in a church at about eight, and uh, I appreciate the part that my parents were like, "Let's get some God in this kid's life. He probably needs it." Uh, so they took me to a church to have that happen, and so you know they had great intentions there. And then uh, when I was eighteen, I was I was baptized again when I in in a river when I knew what I was doing, and I think. I think a lot of people at SMCC, a lot of people in Utah uh, have that experience. They've been baptized twice. I think mm-hmm. uh, I talked to somebody recently that this will be their third time <laughs> getting baptized at South Mountain. And that, now that they understand what it is that they're uh, that they're doing. And it's just, it's always been, baptism is not unique to Christianity. It's not, and, and of course it was part of Judaism, but it's, it's all about identifying that's the key idea of baptism. I'm identifying with this person's message. I'm identifying now with Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, that's really important to, to hear you say, Paul. And I think uh, another thing before we move on to the final part of this doctrinal statement is for people to recognize, and you've already said it, but I want to say it again, that this is a symbol. A symbol always points to something beyond itself. Right. My wedding ring is not the substance of my marriage. Our promises to each other are the substance of our marriage. The wedding ring is a symbol of the marriage. It points to something beyond itself. And so when we talk about communion, communion is a symbol. It's a symbol that points beyond itself to what Jesus has done. Baptism is a symbol. This is a, this is a hallmark of, of evangelical theology. Um, and so that's just an important thing for people to, to recognize. Nothing special about the water. We just filled it up out of the water tank from the closet, you know, at our campuses. I mean, it's not magical, mystical water, uh, but it's symbolic water. And in the symbol, um, people really are pointed to the powerful picture of the gospel. So that's important to, to say. 
Excellent, excellent. The last one that we have is we believe that our purpose for living is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Boy, this is a good one to end on and end this season of podcasts on because we changed some wording uh, this by the suggestion of John Piper uh, of the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession is simply a catechism for young people as they enter into a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. They want to make sure that these kids understand what they're believing. So there's a whole series of questions being asked. And the number one question is, what is the purpose of mankind? And the the right answer, this these are all memorized answers by the kids being uh, put through this catechism. And that answer is, the purpose of mankind is to glorify God uh, and to en- enjoy him forever. And so we've already talked about this on the podcast that you're actually, it's more glorifying to God if you do uh, what you do for him in terms of honoring him. We're not, we're not doing things for him so that he'll do something for us. But, and we're not trying to pay him back for all the good things he did for us. But when we attempt to honor God, it is always more honoring when we do it with a smile on our face, when it's our pleasure, when it's, it, it is a way to fulfill our delight in Christ. And so this is a big deal that we understand that we're not here for all about ourselves. We're not here to use God to make my life feel better or look good or, you know, this, you know, we talked about it, moralistic therapeutic deism where I'm at the center of my universe. No, we're actually pushed out of that place when we place our faith in Christ and Christ takes center uh, that center place in our life center position where our life revolves around him his life doesn't revolve around us and that orientation is essential for joy if if we live self-centered lives we'll never experience joy. Joy is a byproduct of having a right relationship with God. That's how we like to think about it. And so I think Sunday is really important. You know, somehow God decided to put that every seven days. There's there's a, you know, that's that that Sunday opportunity to reconnect with him. And it's really about reorienting our ourselves to him as the center of our life. That 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 is so helpful. And I think during this COVID time, I think people miss that a little bit. Sunday's kind of a day for hiking and biking and you know, and then we can always catch the podcast or the you know, the video uh, sermon or whatever it is, you know, online SMCC online, whatever at any time. It loses the rhythm of life that reorients us to Christ as the center of our life. And I think that's probably the most destructive thing about this whole uh, COVID season. Yeah, I've I've been concerned about what church, what church will look like or who will be there when we all come back because I, I, I wonder if if we're out of the habit if we've lost sight of that and so I'm praying for that anybody listening I just pray that uh, that when we return people would see the significance of of attending but um, Paul one last thing most churches doctrinal statements when you get to the very end have this point and we don't have this point uh, and I'm, I've never asked you this question so I'm curious to see see uh, your thoughts on this. Um, it would say we believe in the return of Jesus Christ, or we believe in this type of premillennial right. return of Jesus. We believe that Jesus is coming back, you know, and we we do believe that Jesus is coming back at SMCC. Um, so let's talk about that just real quick before we sign off on this season one uh, of the podcast. Yeah, obviously uh, there is a return announced by Jesus Christ. We're looking at Matthew twenty five for that. And it's it's accompanied with all kinds of incredible signs, uh, un, unmistakable signs. Like COVID? Is that one of them? Or? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. No. Um, you know, basically uh, sun being blocked out, you know, mm-hmm. stars doing different things, you know, just apocalyptic type of things. 
And then we have we have some information about it in First Second Thessalonians, that type of thing. And then the bulk of information we have about the end times uh, and Christ's return is found in the Book of Revelation. And so, obviously, people in the you know that lived with the Apostle Paul thought that Christ was coming back during their lifetime. They did think that. And yet, that was never made clear that Christ would come back in their lifetime. And so, a lot of Christians started to think that, well, what is all this catastrophic uh, literature about? And then in 70 AD, uh, Rome decided to just crush uh, Judaism and destroy the temple, destroyed Jerusalem. There's rebellion. They just crushed them. And so there's a whole group of people that decided, well, that's that's the uh, sign of the times. That's the apocalyptic uh, fulfillment of so many of the things that Christ said about how horrible it was going to be. And this is a, this is part and parcel of what it means to go through tribulation. And yet there's a seven-year period that's being mentioned, and oh my goodness, is are we going to uh, be uh, are we going to be uh, raptured before the tribulation, midway through the tribulation, after the tribulation? There's all kinds of arguments, and 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 I think that. I got so burned out on trying to figure everything out in seminary. I'd read one book and say, that's who I am. I am post-trib. I am uh, post-everything. You know, and oh, I, you know, I believe that so strongly. And then I read another book uh, for theology class that covered it. And I <laughs> now, completely mid-trib. switch. Mid-trib now. Yeah. And, and so now I'm this and now I'm that. And I saw what it did to people. And I thought to myself, the real problem here is that we don't have a lot of what's called apocalyptic literature to compare what's written in the book of Revelation to. So interpreting the book of Revelation is so difficult. Now, we have all kinds of uh, literature that is similar to biography like we find in the Gospels. We have the kind of literature that we find in Acts. It's history. We have the kind of uh, epistles. We have many examples of letters and epistles uh, that we can compare that to so that we can understand. But we have almost no other examples of of apocalyptic, and it's just symbolic literature. It's, It's filled with symbolism, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven lampstands. I mean, just all this stuff that we're just guessing and and yet the clear message is that Jesus Christ will return triumphant for his church and that our role in this is to be the welcoming party not the planning committee <laughs> that's great that's classic what we are not happen. here to tell people when it's going to happen we're here to welcome them home if we precede them in death i love it and so we want to we don't want to divide over stuff that's not clear. And and so we're going to take a humble posture and say, you know what? You could be right. Uh, but there's some things about the return of Christ that are absolutely ironclad, essential to believe, and that is that he will return for his church and that we're supposed to be ready for that. Excellent. Man, there is so much in this episode. And again, we hope that you will, you know, if you have questions, one, here's the plug here. I mean, you can call, you can call and leave a question. We'll answer it in season two in about, you know, six weeks or so. That number again is 801-382-8151. Um, also, if you, you know, say, hey, I don't necessarily want to call. If you say, I, I don't feel comfortable with that. You could also, uh, just as easily, if you if you want to connect with one of our pastors and ask some questions, you could email smcc at smccutah.org and um, we would get you connected as well and help answer some questions. And uh, also, again, even though we're signing off for, for, for a little stint of time here, we would ask that uh, you do leave us a review, you do share with a friend um, as we want to help you know more and more people 
um, find delight. And we think that getting some of these big questions answered will will help a lot with that. So again, thank you for trusting us with your time. Thank you for listening. And uh, we look forward to having you back when we start season two uh, around August. So thanks again for listening. We'll see you soon. Thanks again for joining us for the Fully Delighted Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe, give us a rating, or share with a friend. For more information about SMCC, please visit our website at smccutah.org. Thanks again for trusting us with your time, and we hope to have you back again soon.